Let us reopen our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10. I want today's morning preaching to be sober, and yet we want to rejoice in the God that has revealed himself to us. And we want to serve him out of love for the great desire he's had to us and what he's done for us as this passage describes. I just want that 12th verse and that 13th verse. And now Israel, Deuteronomy 10:12, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. His commandments are not grievous, they're for our good. And he does command us to keep them, and we should want to keep them. And this is what this great God that I have preached to you the last six months requires of us, and that is to fear him, to walk in his ways, to love him and to serve him, and to keep the word that he's given to us, and all of it is for our good. We want to consider these things with joy. Because he's been a glorious God, as this passage goes on and describes for the Old Testament church the wonderful things that he did for them, and how in turn they were to serve him. I have just completed a 44-sermon series about knowing God, in which we considered all of his attributes. If the Bible is half true, then the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, is very great, and you owe him your entire life. If you receive or respond to the sermons that I have preached to you the last six months with a ho-hum attitude and actions, you're in serious trouble. It's not nearly enough to know about God. For that's merely an intellectual exercise in theology. We want to go way beyond that. I want you to know Him experientially. That means you've experienced God in your life. You've experienced relating to Him, Him communicating to you by His Word and you communicating to Him by prayer and praise. I want you to know Him relationally, that you walk with Him and you have a daily companion and a nightly companion for everything you do. We don't want just head knowledge. We want a heart relationship. It's not enough for us to talk about God, even to profess that we know Him, if we deny Him by our lives. You must instead be talking to Him, not about Him, and living for Him beginning with baptism and extending to every part of your life. He would say, and he did say, and it was written by the prophet Amos in chapter 4, prepare to meet thy God. Prepare to meet thy God. If you've been wrapped up in the things of this world and haven't been as excited about him as you should have been, it won't be a pleasant meeting. If you have fought a good fight and kept the faith and finished your course, It will be one glorious meeting. There wasn't any fear in the Apostle Paul to meet the Lord Jesus Christ and to stand before God and to give an account for his life. He was fully persuaded that what he'd committed to him was going to be kept against that day. His soul was going to be preserved and he was looking forward to meeting the Lord. Those words in Amos, though, they were to the church of the Old Testament, prepare to meet thy God. And we want to remember that. The God that we studied is a great and glorious being. The God that we read about in Deuteronomy 10 already is a great and glorious being. 
And we want to live accordingly for him. I'm going to ask you some questions today. And I want to help you examine yourself if you love the Lord or not. I want you to judge yourself. He's going to judge you soon enough. And if we'll judge ourselves now, we can meet him. And the judgment will be a judgment of blessing. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18. And let me ask you this question. Are you halting between two opinions? This is the predicament Elijah confronted Israel with about the prophets of Baal. Ahab is the king of Israel. Jezebel's his wife. They're Baal worshippers. They've persecuted the prophets of God. So one of their servants is hiding them by fifties in a cave and feeding them bread and water. Elijah has called for a curse upon the weather so that there hasn't been rain for three and a half years. Ahab's been searching high and low from nation to nation trying to find Elijah so that he can kill him. And so Elijah finally reveals himself to Ahab because he's going to have a little revival service. And this revival service is described in verses 17 to the end of the chapter of 1 Kings 18. First of all, Elijah said, get the ministerial association of 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the groves together. I want the 950 ministers in this pagan country to come and join me in this service. And so they were gathered together. Verse 21 tells us, Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? When you halt, you're not moving very fast. You're stopped. How long halt ye between two opinions? That's three positions. One opinion, a halted or stopped position, then another opinion. And Elijah tells us what the two opinions are. If the Lord be God, follow Him. If Baal, follow Him. And the people answered Him not a word. What a lethargic, pitiful, compromising, weak nation this country had become because of the leadership of Ahab and Jezebel. He gives them, what should your response be? The Lord, He is the God. Now they're going to say that in a minute, but the Lord's going to have to turn their hearts and Elijah's going to have to call fire down from heaven. But until he does that, look at they don't say a word. What a lethargic, complacent, pitiful church. And this is the church of the Old Testament. If the Lord be God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. But you shouldn't be caught in the middle. Get off the fence. Get into one field or the other. Either the Lord Jehovah of Israel is God and you should serve Him, or Baal is God, the the God of Ahab and Jezebel, and you should serve Him. But don't halt. And so today, as we consider backward on the 44 sermons we've heard about the Lord Jehovah, we want to make sure that we're not halting. Because the Lord would prefer you to follow Baal than to pretend you're following Him, but not doing it in sincerity and zeal. And we want to remember that about the Bible. You know, this is Elijah in the Old Testament, but the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament would say that you've lost your first love and I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. That is how Jesus Christ talks. If you've lost your first love, and though I can commend you for your doctrine and your labors 
and many things that he commended them for in Revelation chapter 2, the first five verses. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because you've lost your first love. Repent, or I'm going to come and take the candlestick out of the church at Ephesus. Then to the church at Laodicea, I would you were hot or cold. I would you would get one of these two positions. I don't like you halted between them. And so when we hear preaching about the glorious nature of God, we have to make a decision. Are we going to live for Him in a way that is worthy of Him and in the way that He has required of us and asks of us? And you know, most don't. The Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal. That needs a serious, severe definition and limitation because it's not very true. But one thing is true. Very few live their lives for the Lord. Very few Christians live all out for God. And so the Lord Jesus Christ addressed that. And it's hard for us to imagine Jesus saying, I would you were cold rather than lukewarm. I would you were hot rather than lukewarm. There's the two opinions. And in the middle is this horrible position that doesn't either please the devil or the, it pleases the devil, but it doesn't please the flesh or the Lord. In the past, the ancient past, I preached a sermon to you entitled The Three Assumptions of Faith. And the three assumptions of faith are drawn from this place right here because all men, every single man, lives his life by an assumption of faith. One of these three positions. He believes that there is a God, like the Bible describes, but he lives for himself. I mean, he doesn't believe that there's a God like the Bible describes, and he lives for himself. That is a God-hater. He rejects the God of the Bible, and he lives like there is no God. So he's consistent. He's cold. He's the, if Baal is God, then serve him position. He believes there is no God. He says there is no God. He may still believe a little bit of it in his heart. It doesn't really matter. He says there isn't one, so he assumes that what the Bible says about God isn't true. There isn't one. And he lives like it, so he's a God-hater. Then there's those that say, the Bible is true. I believe the Bible and the God it describes, and they live like it. And that's a God-lover. There's far fewer of them than there in the, are the first category. But then there's this horrible, halted position. This person, this assumption, is that there is a God... I believe there's a God like the Bible describes, but then they live as they please. The first one is cold. There's no God, and I'm going to live like there's no God. Then there's those that say there is a God, and I'm going to live like there is a God, the God that the Bible describes. Most Christians say, profess, get baptized, believe, and sing. There is a God like the Bible describes. Then they live for themselves. That is hypocrisy. That is a lie. That is halted between two opinions. That is lukewarm. That is losing your first love. That is what God despises the most because it is so inconsistent and because it is such a lie of religion. He'd rather have us at home reading the works of Madame O'Hare or Albert Pike or something else rather than being in his house rejoicing in the attributes of God 
and saying that we love God and then living a life for ourselves. So the question I ask, are you halted at all between two opinions? Or is your life of such zeal that it matches the God of the Bible? He wants us one place or the other. He doesn't want us in these pews saying that we love the God of the Bible and we delight in what the Bible says about Him and then not living accordingly. Let's look at Acts chapter 26. That was the first question. Are you halted between those two opinions? Sometimes it's hard for people to grasp that Jesus Christ would actually say these words, I would that thou wert cold. Because cold to him is better than lukewarm. Because it's consistent and it keeps his churches free of hypocrites. Acts chapter 26, Paul's on trial for his life before Herod Agrippa II, the last and the seventh of the line of Herod the Great. And Acts chapter 26 is his third testimony in the book of Acts. Acts 9 is his testimony. Acts 22 is his testimony. And then again before this king, and the chapter is wonderful as it describes Paul's life before he was converted on the road to Damascus and his life afterwards. But as he's drawing toward a conclusion, Festus interrupts him and says he's crazy. And he makes his final appeal, knowing that his seconds are drawing, his seconds of being able to speak to Agrippa are about to end. And he appeals to Agrippa in verse 27, and Agrippa responds this way in verse 28. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. Paul's persuasive. And what an opportunity Agrippa had, but it wasn't good enough. What a fantastic opportunity this man had in his life to have heard the Apostle Paul on trial for his life, giving his personal testimony and and and, and mix, matching it with the prophets of the Old Testament, which Agrippa was not ignorant of. And he states that here. And then he says, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now Paul has said in this 27th verse, I know that thou believest with some measure of confidence and with some measure of rhetorical argument against Agrippa. Agrippa knew about the prophets. And it doesn't matter what a man believes on the inside if he's not going to be an open Christian. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. To become an open Christian, he would have to change his lifestyle. He would have to change his friends. He would have to change his music. He would have to change his life. And he wasn't willing to do it. And so these words came out of that this man. I would, but I cannot. I could, but I will not. Are there any here this morning that almost you persuade me to be a sold out, on fire, 100%, all the time, Christian? We want to be that. We want to be fully persuaded. It doesn't matter how much you believe about God or how much you say about God. It's how you live for Him and are you an open Christian. Look at Matthew 22. We're asking ourselves questions. Because the God that we have studied and read about and that the Bible is filled with is worthy of our whole lives. And not only is He worthy of them, He requires them. As we've read twice in Deuteronomy 10.12. Matthew 22. 
I'll just take the verse that I want. We've been over this passage before. It's one of our Lord's parables describing Israel's rejection of the gospel being sent to them by prophets and the message that the Messiah was coming to that nation. And how the king heard thereof in verse 7, he was wroth, he sent forth his armies, those are Titus's armies, and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. I want that fifth verse. But they made light of it. They heard the gospel about the God of the Bible. They made light of it and went their ways. One to his farm, another to his merchandise. Do we get too busy in our jobs? Too busy in our investments? Too busy in our families? Too busy in our professions? Too busy in our education? Too busy in our spectator sports? Too busy in our participant sports? Distracted. Like these right here in this fifth verse, they made light of it. It wasn't important enough to grip them and capture their lives. Jesus would also say, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. When the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, this is the evil it is the root of. It causes a man to make light of the kingdom of heaven. You know, so many don't even know what those words mean. The love of money is the root of all evil. Most sins do not have money involved at all. When I say most, I mean above 90% don't have money involved with them. But the evil of loving money is that it puts a snare and a curse upon a man because it distracts him from putting the Lord's things first. Which is the problem right here. And it was the problem with the rich young ruler that Jesus met. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We call this passage the warning, the prophecy of the perilous times. But of the perilous times reached out their tentacles and grabbed us. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4. The last of the 19 descriptive phrases describing what Christians would be like in the perilous times, the last one in the fourth verse is this. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. We live in a pleasure-addicted society. Societies that have come before us may have been work-addicted. They nearly had to be work-addicted in order to survive. We don't have to be work-addicted. We can take it quite easy. And so we live in a society that has geared itself toward pleasures. You know, when you read through this passage and you look at a phrase like this, you, you wonder, could there have been a generation more like us? Or more like this passage than we are? It's hard to imagine. The question is, will you be a lover of pleasures more than a lover of God? What drives you? What interests you? Where does your time go? Your money go? What motivates you? What turns you on? What excites you? Will you be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God? These are Christians. These aren't worldlings. These are saints. These are baptized believers that are turning away to love pleasure. And pleasure is all around us. It bombards us. It's in our houses. It comes in by the media that we have. So freely available. The whole world's mad with pleasure. You know, they're all working toward next Sunday to have their huge year-end religious service. The Super Bowl. Just constantly goes on and on. And so the question comes to us from God's Word... The God that we heard about, the God that we read about, are we a lover of Him more than we're a lover of pleasure? See, someone will say, 
Well, I keep my job under control. I don't overwork. Someone will say, money doesn't interest me that much. Someone will say, education doesn't interest me that much. And so I ask, how much pleasure, how much does pleasure interest you? How much time do you spend in your hobbies? Or your, with your toys or at your games? And so we have to ask ourselves that question. How do we assess ourselves by the first commandment that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? All of it. All the heart, all the mind, all the soul, all the strength. Or are we a lover of pleasure? Do the two compete with each other? Are we halted between pleasure and God? Instead of leaping over here to this side and saying, The Lord, He is God. Will you be a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God? This great God that we learned about, one of the most wonderful things about serving Him is that the more fully you serve Him, the more pleasure comes from His service. When you're in the pleasure of sin, sin is a deceiver, and the devil's a deceiver, and your flesh is is a deceiver. And they combine together to tell you, I don't want to be a a fully sold out Christian because it won't be very pleasurable. But that's because you're in the flesh, listening to the flesh. If with a step of faith, by Holy Ghost conviction, you can leap out of some of your pleasures and replace them with God, He will give you pleasure that the world's pleasures can't match. And you can only go upward. It never ends. It can go higher and higher the more that you sell yourself out to seeking and loving and serving and cleaving to the God that we've learned about. That's wonderful. So when you give up pleasures, you end up with greater pleasures. You know, Moses gave up the pleasures of sin for a season that were in Egypt. The riches and the wisdom and the praise and the glory and the position of power and influence he had to suffer reproach with the people of God. To suffer with them had greater reward, it says so in Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26, than serving Egypt. Look at Titus 1, 16, in that third pastoral epistle. Titus 1, 16. This is the Jews, and the whole nation was very, much of the nation was very guilty of this. The Jews knew more about Jehovah than any other nationality or culture or religion, obviously. Because God was their God and they were his people and he had revealed himself to them and not to other nations. But look what Paul says about them. Verse 16, they profess that they know God. You know, Jehovah is our God. We name our little boys Elijah. We name our little boys Joel. Both names mean God, our God is Jehovah or Jehovah is our God. They profess that they know God, but in works, they deny him. Being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work, reprobate. You know, we can come in here and sing, and it's been told to you a hundred times. We can come in here and profess. We can come in here and testify even from the pulpit. We can come in here and preach. But in works, we can deny Him. Because He has told us what our works ought to look like. He's told us what the fruit should be in our lives. He's told us His statutes and His commandments. So when we profess with our mouth... We can end up being a God denier. This is how the Lord asks us this question. Do our works match our profession? Are we serving the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? If this church is the house of God, 
the temple of God, our attendance, our service to the brethren in it, our preparation, our prayer for it, our participation in its assemblies should be paramount. Because it's God's temple. How should you enter the temple of the God that we have learned about in 44 sermons? Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. All you have to do is look and see what a person does with their lives, their time, their money, their energy, their emotion, their word, their voice, their vocal cords, what they do. It tells. And we're going to, we're all going to give an account about that when we meet the Lord. Look at 1st John chapter 2. 1st John chapter 2. Verse 15, love not the world. This is spiritual adultery I want to ask you about. Are you guilty of any spiritual adultery by flirting with the world? God is very sensitive. How sensitive? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind. Touch not the unclean thing. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. He's very particular. He's very possessive. And rightfully so. Is he very possessive? So he says here, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love them both. Jesus would say in Matthew 6.24, No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You can't do it. So as we think about the God we've learned about, We have to make a decision. Are we going to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Are we going to try to love both? You cannot love them both. He denies you loving them both. For all that is in the world, verse 16 tells us, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Those two things are antithetical. They are contrary to each other. They are enemies of each other. They are at perpetual war with each other. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. There's the difference. You know, you're you're halting when you're trying to love them both. Because you can't. You're halting because you can't really love the world. Because your conscience won't let you. Your brethren in the church won't let you. And the Lord won't let you. Until you sell yourself out to sin. And that's why he says, I would that you were cold. If Baal's God, serve him. If the world is important and is going to give you lasting satisfaction, serve it. But if it's not, don't play with it. Come free of it. And live for the Lord all out. So these are questions we have to ask. You're going to get asked them anyway. I'm just trying to help you ask them. You study for tests. And you put great effort into preparing for these ridiculous little tests you take. What about the test that's coming for all of us? The examination, the judgment, the accounting test. When there's going to be an accounting done of our lives. This is how we prepare for it. By letting letting the Word of God ask us these questions. And say these things to us. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 16. 2 Chronicles 16. Asa. There's two wonderful chapters about Asa in the Bible that precede this 16th chapter. Chapters 14 and 15 tell us about when the largest 
single army ever appeared in the Old Testament, that was the million Ethiopians that came against Asa, and the Lord gave him an astounding victory. He, right. he brought about a revival because of it. But then in chapter 16, it is pitiful. Asa's king of Judah, the ten tribes of Israel, to say that they're, they're, they're going to come in war against Judah. So he goes to Damascus and gets the Syrians, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, to help him. So instead of looking to the Lord, who delivered him from a million, now he's going to the Syrians to help him in battle. It's, it's horrible. This is where you have that ninth verse that some of you love. Verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. When you asked me a few minutes ago, how much does he want of our hearts? Or, or how precise is he? Or, or how much does he expect? Well, there it is. Whose heart is perfect toward him. And Asa's had been. That's why he had the great victory over the Ethiopians. This is a prophet condemning him for going to the Syrians for help instead of to the Lord. And look at the last sentence of that ninth verse. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. What a disaster for not putting his complete trust and zeal and perfect heart in the Lord. Look at verse 12. And Asa in the thirty and ninth year of his reign was diseased in his feet. He had the gout or something. Until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord but to the physicians. What a ruined life. He started out so well. Where are you today? We've heard about the God of heaven. Are you committed to him? Are you like Asa should have been with a heart perfect toward the Lord? That man has the eyes of the Lord running to and fro through the earth to work great things on his behalf. Things work out for those whose heart is perfect with the Lord. And when they don't work out, it's better than if they did work out. Because the Lord has some higher calling for them. Because if you say to me, well, to die the death of a martyr doesn't sound like the eyes of the Lord were running to and fro in the earth for that person. Are you kidding me? To die the death of a martyr and have the grace of God in your heart to where you could forgive your persecutors and be singing in the flames of a fire is greater than being the vice president of a bank and having your own trading department. Far greater. Because that's a gift that you're giving to God that you can't give in a bank. That's a high calling. Oh Lord, let us be like Asa was in the beginning and not like he was at the end. How are we going to end our lives? It doesn't matter how we begin them. Jehu began his reign very well. The Lord was pleased with all that he did. But look at how he ended. It was horrible. Look at how Solomon began. Look at how Solomon ended. Lord, have mercy upon us. Look at Job 23. Job 23. If the Bible is half true, then the God of the Bible deserves your full life. But since the Bible's fully true, how much does he desire, how much does he deserve of your life? All of it. And then some. All that we can give him. And trust him to show us things in our lives that we can give him even beyond what we would give him initially. 
Verse 12 of Job 23, Job says this about his respect for God's word. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. Have you turned back from any of God's commandments? I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. We are so careful, and we are driven by an appetite, and we are driven by habit, and we are driven by desire to make sure that we have three five, three meals, snacks, whatever, to satisfy our physical longings for food. And Job said, even my necessary food, if I reduced myself just to that food that was to keep me alive, I esteem God's word higher than that. And so I ask you this question. Are you esteeming God's words as highly and surely as you do necessary food? Not snacks, necessary food. You make sure you eat. And if you're used to eating an evening meal when you get home from work, if there was no attempt made and no mention made of an evening meal, you would flip out. You would, you'd be confused. You would be messed up. You would be irritated if someone else was responsible to get that meal started, or at least to have mentioned it. And Job said that his esteem of God's words was like that. And how do we tell if the God of the Bible is as important as he should be to us? How do we esteem his words? That God, God of gods, Deuteronomy chapter 10, Lord of lords, the heaven, and the heaven of heavens is his, that God wrote a book to us. How do we esteem his words? Are you reading it every day? Could you read it three times a day? A few minutes, three times a day. How do you esteem it? Because you, you know how you esteem your necessary food. This is how we do it. David would say that God's word was more valuable to him than much fine gold. He would say it was sweeter to his taste than honey and the honeycomb. Are you reading God's word this year? You know, with, with what preaching has gone in the six months leading up to today, we should be avid Bible readers. Because that is God's words to us. That is where He reminds us of what we learned about Him. That is where He tells us how He wants us to live for Him. That's one of the ways that we can tell how much we love God. Do we love the letter that He's written to us where He tells us about Himself and what He's done for us and what He has in store for us. In Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, it says that we are supposed to worship and teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. A person is full of the Holy Ghost. A person is full of the Holy Spirit of God, according to Ephesians 5.18, the verse that comes before the description of singing, will sing. A passage that I referred to through that series often was John chapter 14, where, John, where Jesus was speaking to Thomas and talking about the fact that he would be in dwelling us, and that if you had seen Jesus, you had seen the Father, and that both of them were going to come in the presence of the Holy Spirit and dwell in the apostles. How do we know if we're walking in the Spirit? How do we know if we really love God? How do we know if God is in us, shedding abroad His love in our hearts? We love to sing. And so if we don't love to sing, we have to ask ourselves, what's wrong? And if you say, Well, I'm just not very gifted at singing. That doesn't have anything to do with it. There is nothing about musical ability or the sound that you make. It's the words that come out. 
And singing is something you do when you're excited and you're happy. And it's something we're supposed to do toward the Lord. Look at Psalm 47. These are verses that you've heard before, but remember all of this is what you've heard before. The question is, what are you doing? Because when you get to heaven, he's not going to surprise you, the Lord's not going to surprise you with new things. When you get to heaven, it's going to all be old stuff. How well did you do the old stuff? Remember this old thing here. I taught it to you 22 years ago in three months. There was another sermon on it 19 years and seven months ago. And you're going to hear about that. That's It's old stuff. How well are you doing the old stuff? You know, when you've been the most convicted in your life, are you that convicted right now? Psalm 47. It's verse 6. Oh, there's... Oh, we got to start with verse 5. God is gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises unto our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. God is King. So we need to love singing. And we need to have singing. We don't want to mouth the words when we sit in here or stand in this house. We want to sing from our heart. We want to make a joyful noise to the Lord. We want to make a loud noise to the Lord. Because it shows our zeal for this glorious King that is our God. Singing. Do you just mumble through it? When the song leader picks a song with six verses, do you wish we were in an Arminian church where they would say the first and the last so that you could avoid the four so that your feet wouldn't get tired? I know what you're thinking. How do I know what you're thinking? Oh Lord, help us. How can you, how can you have the verb sing four times in one verse? Because the Holy Spirit wants to emphasize a particular verbal action that we're supposed to be showing toward God. And you know, when we talk about being like David, we have to love music. We have to love only one kind of music. And that's music that glorifies God. What a terrible travesty. What a horrible sin. If the music you choose for your life is the world's music. Your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost. But there's two windows open to your temple. If you could close the windows, then you could go ahead and listen to the world's music and it wouldn't offend the Holy Ghost. But what two windows are open? Your ears. And so the sound gets down into your soul while you're listening to the world's music. Why would you ever choose the world's music if you're loving, loving the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why would you ever choose it? Temple music should be coming into the ears so that the Holy Spirit of God is pleased with the sound and the words. Look at Malachi 3.16. We mention it often. You know about it. You've heard about it. But is your name in it? Is the question. Malachi 3.16. Then they that feared the Lord. What kind of people are these? These are the kind of people doing what God requires. What doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord. Then they that feared the Lord. So these are God's people. Sincerely God's people. These aren't lukewarm. These are hot saints. Then they that fear the Lord spake. So they did it this way. It was with their mouth. They said things. It was verbal. It was audible. It could be heard. 
others could pick it up, others could understand it, others could comprehend that information had been communicated from their mouths to other ears about God. You have to talk about them. Then they that feared the Lord spake. And how often, or when did they speak is the question. Often. One to another. They didn't wait till they had or were forced to get into the pulpit and to do something like we're going to do in the second assembly. They liked to talk about the Lord in one-on-one conversations. They weren't waiting around until it was sort of obligatory to say something because of those gathered around. It's one to another. And the Lord hearkened. The Lord heard it. It says that. The Lord heard it. That's exciting. The Lord heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that fear the Lord. Because those that really fear the Lord, it's not them telling you they fear the Lord. It's not them checking off a questionnaire, I fear the Lord. It's them talking about the Lord. When you're with them, they don't talk about their job. They don't talk about politics. They don't talk about investments. They talk about the Lord. Those other things have their place, but they're always secondary. The Lord is always first, because we're supposed to be seeking first that kingdom, that nation, that God, that Lord. And so here a book is written. What a verse of comfort in the Bible that the Lord hears, and our names can be in it. But we have a question. Is your name in it? You say, well, I don't know if he wrote me down. You can know if he wrote you down. He tells you on what basis he writes you down. You can know. And we all know. If you don't know, come and ask us. Send everyone an email and say, is my name in the book of remembrance? We'll know. Because you will have talked to us about the things of the Lord, and you will have done it often. And it would have been verbal. This is, these are the questions the Lord's going to ask all of us, and the questions the Lord's going to ask me along with you. And it's not a time for us to grieve for long. If there's, a, if there's a question that comes up that you know you haven't been as good at as you should have been, then confess it right then right. and say, Lord God, as soon as this service ends, I will speak to others about you. Right. And I'm sorry for not talking about you as often as I should have. Do you have the heart's desire that Paul had in Romans 10? Romans 10 starts off this way. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. The book of remembrance is when you speak about God to those that are the Lord's. That's to your brethren, to one another. The Lord hearkens to that and he hears it. But then there are those that are not converted. How much zeal do you have for them? How many times do you pray for them? Do you have a heart full of desire for them? When you read the emails that I send you, does it stoke a fire in you? Or have you made a choice that I'll just skim down through the update and see what announcements there are and what's going on in other people's lives and I'm not going to worry about all that junk at the end that the pastor attaches? Or do you read them one at a time and realize those are individual souls, individual families, scattered abroad upon the face of the earth, and you have a desire for them? And you love the goal of our church, and that is to evangelize one soul at a time. And so when you read it, when you look at that individual, 
you pray for him. You think about his joy. You think about his needs. Look at Paul. How are we going to be like? Did Paul love God is the question. Yes, Paul loved God. And how did he show it in this particular way? He had a heart's desire that the rest of God's elect would know about God like he did. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes. What have you endured for the elect's sakes? These are questions we're going to, we're going to be asked. You know, how aggressively and thoroughly and consistently do you teach them to your children? Hezekiah, one of his ways of reasoning with the Lord to have some life extension when he was 39 years old and was on his deathbed was the father to the children shall declare thy truth. Not mommy work, daddy work. The father to the children shall declare thy truth. Isaiah 38 and verse 19. That's a way that you can tell how much you love God is by how consistently and thoroughly and often you tell your children. That, that is the from generation to generation. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. And with my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness unto all generations. Every generation that we have a, an opportunity to influence, we want to be singing and talking about God's mercies and God's faithfulness. It tells how much we love Him. Now, God has communicated to you. How long would it take you to read this? It's going to take you all year. Okay, that's good. It takes you a year to read what God communicated to you. Another way that we can find out if 44 sermons about the great God of heaven moved us is how much do you communicate to God? Right. We communicate to God by prayer. When we pray, we're talking to God. He's already talked to us. And He talks to us in the creation. And He talks to us in our conscience. And He talks to us by providence. But He's, he's written us a letter. Have you written the Lord one? You say, well, a letter would be stupid. It, it, it worked pretty well for Hezekiah. He took a letter and spread it out before the Lord. And the Lord saw it. And the Lord gave him a great victory. That's where the 185,000 dead corpses came from. It was a letter spread out on the floor. And so I'm asking you, and I'm asking me, if God's as great as I preached Him, and I think He's a whole lot greater. I don't, I don't know how to preach Him well enough. He's a whole lot greater than what I preach to you. How often do you talk to Him? And I'm not talking about asking to make more money. And I'm not talking about asking for you to pass your test. That's way down the list. You can maybe stick that in as a PS in very small type. The big ones ought to be how much you love Him. How thankful you are to know Him. How great and glorious He is. And to forgive you your unworthiness and your sinfulness so that you can draw closer to Him. And to be asking Him to draw closer to you. And be asking Him to fill you with the measure of His Spirit. To be asking Him, like we heard in the back room today, to have a double portion of Elijah's Spirit. You men that were back there with me, did you hear that? Those are the kind of things we want to be asking for. You know, he'll take care of the little things like our tests and our cars and our jobs and our money and our children and childbirth and all those things as long as we're asking for our hearts to be right with him. How often do we pray? When you delight in a person and you love a person, you esteem a person, you want to communicate both ways with that person. Well, that person, that being is God and he's communicated with us. How much do you communicate with him? Do you love to pray? 
Prayer is how you worship Him, confess your sins, thank Him and show your dependence upon Him. What do you glory in? I'm going to skim over that one because I've preached it so many times. Psalm 37.4, delight thyself in the Lord. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor the rich man in his riches, nor the wise man in his wisdom. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he knoweth and understandeth me. That is what should excite us more than anything else. That I exercise loving kindness, judgment, and mercy in the earth. Those are three attributes. And so the, the Lord is telling us, instead of educational accomplishments or athletic accomplishments or financial accomplishments, we should rejoice that we know and understand God and that loving kindness, judgment, and mercy are three of His great attributes. That's what we should delight in and be excited about. That's what we should punch the air for. That's what we should shout for. That's what we should pick up the phone for and say, have you ever heard this verse? That is why we had the blog that has 1,030 verses on it. Do we do that enough? I don't want to beat you down. I want to pull you up. Right. I don't want there to be a beat down in the future for any of us. I want the Lord to come and lift us all up higher. Amen. I used to sing a song as a child called Higher Ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand on heaven's table land. Young people, youth, I'm going to see you on Wednesday. It's the fifth Wednesday of the month. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 from the preacher, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. Before those evil days come, when you're not going to have the vigor, the memory, the ability, the zeal, the time, the, the lack of responsibility to pursue the Lord like you could right now. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. Some of you young people wrote me emails over the past six months and said that you were blessed, encouraged, comforted, taught, and you were thankful for what you had heard. Are you making the Lord your portion in this early stage of your life? You know, there are some that love duty and honor, and they think that duty and honor in a job or in the military or something is noble. Compared to the duty and honor we owe God, it's not noble. It's just all a joke. Everything down here is a joke in comparison, in comparison to what we owe him. He's a great king. We don't have a great king ruling our nation. He is a great king. He's God of gods and Lord of lords. And Solomon told us, after a great philosophical experiment, and that was to try to find what man's purpose was under the sun, he said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. The whole matter of life. Let us hear the conclusion of it. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That's duty. If you like duty, that's duty that you can apply yourself to every day. Are you a dunger? Are you a dunger? I didn't say dugger. That would mean you would need 25 children by one woman. I said dunger. The Apostle Paul was a dunger. He counted all things but dung that he might know Christ, that he might know God, and that he might press for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus his Lord. Are you a dunger? Are there things in your life that you're willing to throw away? Things in your life you're willing to curtail, cut back, 
so that you can have more time for singing, more time for praying, more time for talking, more time for meditating on God's Word. That's how we become a dunger. How much did Paul throw away? Everything. Paul threw away everything. And so he's the chief example in the New Testament. And Paul doesn't come along and say, I know I'm kind of exceptional, I'm a minister, I'm an apostle, and none of you should follow me because I'm an apostle. He says, all of you should follow me because I'm an apostle, and you should identify anyone else that looks like me and follow them as well. In Philippians chapter 3, the very same chapter where he's described as a dunger. Are you willing to flush some things in your life because that's where dung belongs and dung goes? Are you willing to flush some things in your life to be more a greater lover of God. This is why we assemble. To be reminded that we should be lovers of God. There's nothing in the newspaper about it. There's nothing on the internet about it. There's nothing when we go to work about it. There's nothing when we go to exercise about it. We've got to come in here and remind ourselves and then make choices during the week to remind us that we'll be a lover of God and to encourage each other to be a lover of God. Amen. What is your portion, your cup in this world? Asaph got discouraged looking at the prosperity of the wicked, and he he lost sight of what was important. But he regathered himself when he came into the house of the Lord on January 27, 2013, and he, he was asked a bunch of questions by the scribe. And he came to the conclusion, Whom have I in heaven? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth. But the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what we want to choose. That's what we want. What is your exceeding great reward? What reward could you get? To take the largest position and have it succeed in investments? To run to the top of your company and be the CEO, the chairman of the board? And to sit on ten other boards of big banks? What's your exceeding great reward? To get a spouse? Any of you that would say that, so you're exceeding great reward, come and see me. Children? To have a child? And I'm not making fun of marriage. I'm making fun of everything in comparison to the exceeding great reward. Abraham had a beautiful wife. A very beautiful wife. When she took the first step off the train in Egypt, or the first step off the train in Philistia, everyone wanted her all the way up to the king. And it would be immediately reported, there is a beautiful woman in our nation. Bring her to me. Abraham had a beautiful wife, but that was not his exceeding great reward. He never mentions it at all as a reward. She was a, she was somewhat of a problem to him in her relationship with Hagar and her carnal desire for a child and in her relationship with Ishmael, but that's beside the point. The Bible tells us that God said to Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. What could happen that would make you the happiest? Some of you, it might be educationally. Some it might be athletically, some it might be financially, some it might be professionally, some it might be family. Don't let it be any of those things. It should be, I would love the Lord to draw nigh to me and have a relationship with me and walk with me like he did with Moses, like he did with David, like he did with Jesus, and like he did with Paul. 
Then he would be your exceeding great reward. And if he did that, you wouldn't care about anything else. You'd be the best husband, but you wouldn't really care much about your wife. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, those that have wives be as though they have none. Because you're all, your, your attention would be on the Lord. You'd be a far better husband than you are now. But that should be your exceeding great reward. Right. Lord, help us to think that way and to seek that. Here's the, here's the real issue. If that is your desire, if you believe that that is the exceeding great reward, why don't you have it? Why don't I have it? Because we haven't drawn nigh to Him with the zeal and committedness that we should. Because the Bible says, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. So we need to do some more drawing nigh to Him. If that's our exceeding great reward. What is the one thing that you desire out of life? I mean, I know it sounds close to what I just said. We heard this verse in the back room this morning. I love it when men use Scripture in their praying. Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing... This is your exceeding great reward. One thing have I desired of the Lord. One thing. Your children, is that the one thing you've desired of the Lord? Your job? Your business? A spouse? Deliverance from physical maladies or diseases or sickness? What's the one thing? One thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Amen. Psalm 27.4 Is there anyone that can hear my voice today and hear these questions and know you can call it Father Time, you can call it the King of Terrors, but it is death and it's coming for all of us And we are going to meet God. And he says, prepare to meet thy God. He will ask you these questions. Why wasn't he your exceeding great reward? And what one thing did you want the most in your life? And I'm going to, I'm trying to help you now and I'm trying to help me now. I want us to make the right choice and to live it from this day forward until the day we die. So when we stand before him, he won't have to ask us. He can say, well done, my good and faithful servant. One thing you sought after, and that was to seek my face and to behold my beauty in the temple of the Lord. You're not your own. Do you know that? Paul would say it this way, what? Know ye not that ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your spirit and in your body, which are God's. He created us. He saved us. He's our creator. He's our savior. There's more though. He's our father and he's our friend. Abraham was the friend of Jehovah. If Abraham could be the friend of Jehovah, we can be the friend of Jehovah. Abraham is set up in his example as the father of the faithful. You're not your own. And if you make your life your own and do as you please, you will answer to him to whom your life belongs. Are you bringing God your very best? Remember Malachi chapter 1? 
where the prophet would say, try this with your governor. Take second best to your governor and see if he'll accept it of your hand. Would a governor accept second best? No, he wouldn't. We would take our very best. I am a great king, saith the God of the Bible in Malachi 1.14. Are you bringing him your best? If we come in here and we sing, if we come in here and we hear, and worst of all, we come in here and preach, or I come in here and preach, and we don't give God our best, we are cursed. Malachi 1.14, because he is a great king, and the heathen know that about our God. How's your zeal? The Bible says it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. Is your zeal as hot as it could be and should be? You know, we studied the, we studied the, the nature and the character traits and the attributes of God so that we would love Him more. That's why I preached it. I wanted to get to those relational attributes so that we would walk with God and know how much comfort we can have with Him and how much love can be exchanged between Him and His children. Are you walking with Him? If all men are created equal, that certainly needs to be severely defined and limited because they're certainly not equal in the way they love God. In this church, in the whole church of all the redeemed family of God, there's a great wide latitude in how they love God. The Bible tells us in Jude chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. It is effort and work to keep ourselves loving God. When it says keep ourselves in the love of God, that is not keeping ourselves in God's love for us. That's never going to be taken away from us. It's keeping us loving Him. And it takes effort. And Jude, in that sober, short epistle, warning about men who would turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, (coughs) exhorted us to keep ourselves in the love of God. I exhort you today, keep yourself in the love of God. Can sports take away your love of God? Can business take away your love of God? Can money? Can family? Can children? Jesus would say, if any man come after me and hate not father, mother, wife, child, son, brother, sister, all those things cannot be my disciple. So keep yourself in the love of God and the choices that you make the rest of this day. Let's make them to keep ourselves loving God. These are questions you will be asked. These are questions you will have to answer. You will not be able to hide. You will not be able to deceive. You will not be able to play the hypocrite. God will ask them. And you'll be standing before a throne before whom the heavens and the earth will flee away. That shouldn't have to terrify us. All we have to do is be thankful for the God that has revealed himself to us. The God that has loved us the God that has adopted us so that He is our Father, the God that is a friend to those that fear Him, the God that writes a book of remembrance to those that talk about Him. And so we commit ourselves, I'm going to worship that God. The Bible is more than half true. And if the Bible's more than half true, because just being half true is enough to deserve my entire life, I'm going to give Him all that I have. I'm going to love Him more than I have. I'm going to read His Word more than I have. I'm going to pray and communicate it with him more than I have. I'm going to speak often about him. I'm going to guard my life. I'm going to keep myself in the love of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word to the salvation of all of our souls that we may meet him with confidence in that day that's rapidly approaching. Amen. Amen.